we're talking about conflicts, and we're talking about relationships. And we don't like those two things to go together. I mean, we wish that we could just have relationships without conflicts. In fact, we would like life without conflicts. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen. And here we have this wonderful institution called marriage, and it opens us up to the great opportunity of the deepest, most meaningful relationship we can have on earth. And we go into it hoping for life's very best. And as a pastor, as I do premarital counseling, I sort of have to balance the, the different sides of relationships. On one side, I want to definitely talk about the joy of marriage and the happiness of it. And I want to share sort of the starry-eyed romance that these two are enjoying while they're dating and getting ready to get married. But on the other side, I kind of want to tell them about the reality of marriage and that it's not that easy and that, in fact, it's hard. And like it or not, there's going to be conflict in marriage. And that's not an easy balance. But I love doing weddings. And I love going up there and, and believing that as I'm performing this marriage and this wedding, that they are going to experience the greatest joys of life. But the reality is I know that they're going to face conflict. And they're going to have to learn to conquer it. And that's the title of our message today as we continue in the series of the Song of Solomon. You know, we like to think of the Song of Solomon as this very romantic book. But as we read it, we actually find out that, yes, it's very romantic, but there is conflict even in their relationship, even in the midst of these amazing romance that they have. And in the same way, even when I begin a wedding... Even the traditional words that are part of a wedding service speak of the possibilities and the reality of conflict in a marriage and in a relationship. And so these are the traditional words that you see, and you have it there on your outline. It's also up here on the screen. And um, I'd like you to read it with me, okay? Because these are words that I might say as I begin a wedding service. And you've heard them before, I'm sure, if you've gone to very many weddings. So let's say it together. Let's begin. Dearly beloved, we are assembled here in the presence of God to join this man and this woman in holy marriage, which is instituted of God, regulated by his commandments, blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be held in honor among all men. Let us therefore reverently remember that God has established and sanctified marriage for the welfare and happiness of mankind. Our Savior has declared that a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. His apostles, by his apostles, he has instructed those who enter into this relationship to cherish a mutual esteem and love, to bear with each other's infirmities and weaknesses, and to comfort each other in sickness, trouble, and sorrow, in honesty and industry, to provide for each other and for their household in temporal things, to pray for and encourage each other in things which pertain to God, and to live together as the heirs of the grace of life. And so these words, these very traditional words, they're part of the words that came from what's called the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, the traditional ones come from 1928. So these are very old words, and yet they speak to us today about God's purposes in marriage. And it actually talks about the reasons for marriage. So if we go to the next slide, 
uh, what we'll see there is the reasons for marriage we see is that God has instituted it. It's an institution. It's something God has placed here on earth. It's for our good, according to the scriptures. And also according to these, it says God has established and sanctified marriage for the welfare and happiness of who? You know, of mankind. Now, I think we go into marriage thinking it's for our happiness, for the happiness of a man and a woman. But the writers of this understood that the purpose of marriage goes way beyond my happiness and my wife's happiness. It's for the happiness and the welfare of mankind, that the purposes of marriage are so that we have a society that is strong and healthy and families. So that's one of the reasons that we find here. But we also, as we go into this, the next slide will show us that um, these common words also tell us how to have this blessed marriage, how to create something for the happiness of mankind. And so one is we see by God's commandments. Also, we see that we have to have a marriage that's blessed by the Lord Jesus. And then it also needs to be held in honor. We need to respect marriage. Secondly, we see that we have to create our new families. Man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and so they want to create a new family. But not only that, that to be able to have a happy marriage, we have to cherish a mutual esteem and love for each other. We ought to be praying for each other, encouraging each other in the things of God. And so we need to build faith in our marriages. And then we need to live together as heirs of the good life, of the grace and the gift of life that God gives. And so these are things that even in these traditional words of a wedding begin to talk about how marriage can be good. But then thirdly, our last slide here, talks about how we can also deal with the difficulties of marriage. So even in here, okay, even in the opening words, it tells us there's going to be difficulties in marriage. And so we can begin again with we're cherishing a mutual esteem and love, but we must also learn to bear with each other. Bear what? Bear our infirmities. Bear our weaknesses. When I say the vows for a wedding, one of the things that the couple will say is in sickness and in health. And so we bear the infirmities of other people, of what they care, what we bring into a marriage. And then we are to comfort each other. So there's going to be sorrow in marriage. There's going to be sickness in marriage. There's going to be trouble in marriage. And in all these things, God wants us to work through them. And so today, as we go into this passage in Song of Solomon, we're looking at chapter 5 and chapter 6 of the Song of Solomon. And if you remember chapter 3 and chapter 4 about the wedding night, And so right after the honeymoon, in chapter 5, what we find is the first thing Solomon talks about is what? It's it's conflict. It's problems. You know, when I was dating Carol, uh, we dated for over four years, all right? And during those four years, we never had a major fight, okay? We never had a major fight in the four years that we were dating. That made me think we were a perfect match for marriage, all right? So we never had a major fight. But once I got married, that fixed that, all right? You know, it was like on our honeymoon, we had this big old explosion, and it was all on me, all right? It was as if I was hiding for four years my jerkiness, you know? It was like I just hiding the jerkiness of myself for four years, but once I got married, I couldn't hide it anymore, 
right? We had this amazing fight, and it's this beautiful island that we were on. I remember the sun was setting, and I'm thinking, something's wrong here, right? You know, how is it that after four and a half years of knowing somebody and zero major conflicts, that within two weeks of marriage, we're already at each other? Well, what is it about marriage that does that to us? We're going to find out. We're going to find out that the first thing is that we are weak people. We're all weak people. And we need to admit that we are weak people. I mean, it's not easy, okay, in premarital counseling to tell a couple, you know, I know that, you know, you're enjoying things now, but it's going to get hard once you get married. But this is what Solomon is letting us know here in the book, that marriage brings with it our weaknesses. Now, as we begin in Song of Solomon, we're looking at chapter 5, verse 2. You're going to notice that the first words say, I slept, but my heart was awake. Okay, this is the woman speaking. So there's two possible interpretations for this that I think are most plausible. One is that she's just waking up from a sleep. She's been sleeping, and she sort of dozes off, and then her husband knocks on the door. That's one possibility. And the other one, which I sort of lean to more, is that she's actually dreaming. And it could actually be both at the same time. But she's dreaming about her husband. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a dream, do you ever dream about things that you're dealing with in your life? Do you ever like have a bad day and then you have a bad dream? Or you dream about things that you're angry about, or you dream about things that you're struggling with. And when you dream them, when you wake up, it almost feels more real than the reality itself. And I think that's what's happening here. I think that because this is a poem, that Solomon is actually using the idea of a dream to convey what is happening in this relationship. It probably did happen, but the dream itself allows us to experience it to the depths with, without any kind of sense of, of defense mechanism up. We're just experiencing it in this dream, and it hurts, and it's powerful, and it's real. And so we see here that, that she's dreaming, but as she is, she hears a knock at the door, and she says, listen. My lover, he's knocking at the door. And then he says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. He's ready to come to be with her. And there's a lot of sexual tones here that saying that she wants to be with her and enjoy the fact that they are a married couple and continue to enjoy the privileges of sharing intimacy together. But then notice what she says in verse 3. She replies to him and says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? And so she responds to him, and, and he's on the other side of the door, and she's saying, I'm not going to answer the door. Okay, I'm not going to come. And so there's a difference that begins right there between them. And there are differences between a male and a female that go well beyond just the physical differences. There are emotional differences. There are needs in our heart that are different. The way we think are different. The way God put the chemicals in our body, the way we respond to things like arguments and work and sex are all very different. And so here we see some differences that are already happening between these two. And I think that's the first thing, that as we confess our weaknesses and even our sins to ourselves, even before we confess them to others, 
we must realize that it is our differences that often bring this out. It is our differences between the sexes that magnify what happens in marriage, that causes what when we were dating wouldn't have been much of an argument, but after we get married, it becomes really powerful. And so God wants us to know that it's our differences. It's like you have two chemicals, all right? And before you get married, you have one chemical on one side and the other chemicals, you have the man and the woman. But until you pour them together, there's no reaction. So when you're dating, they're separate and they seem really cool on each side, all right? But once you pour these two together in marriage, you have a chemical reaction, and one of the ways that I was displayed this or taught this when we were in our premarital counseling is that it was like pouring water into mortar, okay? And so our pastor told us that when we get married, what's going to happen is it's going to be like pouring water into cement, and then the two are going to bond together, and they're going to harden. And when if you ever try to break it apart, you're going to destroy it. And that was a chemical reaction that was happening there. But there are other chemical reactions that we might put two things together, like a flame and gas, and it'll explode. And this is what might happen when we get married. The differences are distinct, and they're real, and they're powerful, and we don't realize them until we get married. And so here, the husband has a desire to be with his wife. She's kind of tired. She says, I've taken off my robe. Do I got to put it back on again? I already washed my feet. You know, what she's saying is, you know, hey, I'm, I'm laying in bed and I'm naked. Don't bother me. And that's just like exciting him all the more, you know. And so he wants to come in. And so he says, verse 4, my lover thrust his hand through the latch opening and my heart began to pound for him. And so, so he wants to come into her all the more. She's on the other side going, honey, I have a headache. You know, I'm tired. And he's saying, I want in. And so he knocks on the door. But the more he knocks, then her heart begins to desire even more. And so it says, I arose and opened for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the law. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone, and my heart sank at his departure. Again, seeing this as a dream. It's a sequence of events that can happen over a little bit of a longer time than just a few phrases and sentences. So she'd been laying there in bed thinking about this. He's knocking. But there's a certain sense of indifference in her heart that we see. There's an indifference that, that doesn't meet his needs. He wants something and he wants it now and he's not going to get it But she and she's not in the mood to give it. And so he gives up and he leaves we might say here that he is maybe to blame in part as well because he didn't wait very long. He was impatient. And I think that indifference can happen because that's what happens there for her. She was indifferent to his advances. She was indifferent to his needs. But then he became impatient in trying to understand what she was trying to convey. And so these differences that we have can create these kinds of conflicts and these misunderstandings between ourselves and between our mates. And we can overreact, we can underreact, but we don't understand each other. It takes time to understand each other. We have our weaknesses. We have our differences. We have indifference at time. There's impatience at time. 
And we will all face this. We all face difficulties that are challenges. What then do we do? What then can we do? Let's look at verse 6, the second half of verse 6. And we'll go on um, through verse 8. And there it says, she's speaking and she says, I looked for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took my cloak away. Those watchmen of the walls, O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. So they had this conflict. They had this difference. She loses her lover. He runs away. But what does she do? She shows us that she is committed to this relationship. And this is what we must be. When we face conflict, wherever we are right now in our relationship, whatever relationship you have right now, wherever it is, God wants you to be committed to that relationship, to make it work, to find the way to make it work, because God has the power. And so she is committed to finding him. She is looking for him. She says, I went out and I'm going to look for him. And so she puts on her clothes and she goes out. And she swallows whatever her pride may be to go and find him. And she teaches us something that's so important for us as we think about how do I commit to this relationship? How do I show it? Well, I show it by letting my mate know and letting my family know that my marriage and my partner and my family are more important to me than me getting what I need. That my relationship with the one that I'm married to, this marriage that I did before God and before my family and my friends, and if I have children now, that I am more committed to this relationship than I am about finding my means of proving that I am right and getting what I want. There is an unselfishness that God challenges us to. That when we face struggles in marriage, God is bringing us to a point of our own character and saying, so how strong are you? How strong are you? Not, it's not about your mate. It's about you. And I can think about that multiple times in my own life where I have been faced with my own weakness in marriage. And the question is, will I care more about the marriage, about my relationship, and about my family, or am I going to try to just have my own needs met? And this woman is unselfish. And so maybe she made a mistake. Maybe she was indifferent. Maybe she didn't act fast enough. But she was ready to fix it. And she was telling her spouse, I'm going to go look for you. I'm going to go and find you. But then as she goes out in her dream, she gets beat up. And you've probably had that happen in your dream where something bad happens in your dream, like you're trying to run away and you just can't run fast enough, you know, and something's happening or you're falling and you never hit the ground. You know, something bad happens and you begin to really feel the pain. Okay, so this is what I think is happening in her dream. She's feeling a bit guilty. And she feels like it's her fault. And so she takes the blame. I didn't get up fast enough. I didn't open the door. If I had opened the door, he wouldn't have run away. And so in her dream, these watchmen represent her conscience. These watchmen are the ones who are supposed to protect her, actually protecting the city, but they end up beating her up. And so she's feeling a sense of guilt about this. She's feeling a sense of pain 
about this. And in fact, had her husband been there with her, it was his job to protect her. And had she been with her husband, these things wouldn't have happened. But she ends up getting hurt. She ends up dealing with it. But again, I think there's something else in here that's really instructive to us about her. Even though she gets beat up, even though she gets hurt, she's working through it. And she's going to find her lover no matter what. In fact, she says, I am faint with love. I am so lovesick for him that it hurts within me. And I think this is the thing that God is calling us to do when we commit to the relationship, is to work through the pain. Every relationship will have pain. Every relationship that is meaningful will have pain, whether it is a pain with your best friend, whether it's a pain with your parents, whether it's a pain with your sister and brother, whether it's a pain with your wife, your husband. You're going to have it to build that relationship. And God wants us to work through it just like she was willing to work through it. Yes, in her dream she got beat up, but that wasn't going to stop her. She got hurt, and we get hurt in relationships, but that shouldn't stop us. In fact, as Carol and I think back to the points of our marriage where we got the strongest, it was at the points of the same time that were the most difficult. And so God wants us to be committed to the relationship, to be committed to what we have created in the eyes of God by saying, I do, and I will. And then God wants us to continue to communicate in our relationship. And so here are such practical words to us, that if you have conflict with someone, what we need to learn during that time is what Solomon teaches us in verses 9 of chapter 5 into the beginning of chapter 6, and that is to communicate with gracious words to communicate with gracious words. When we are facing difficulty, we need to have God's help to use the right words. Now let me read this and you can follow. I'm going to read verse 5 and I'm going to begin um, at, I'm sorry, read chapter 5 beginning at verse 9. Okay, so this is the question. So she tells these friends, these women, I'm going to go find my husband. You go look for him too. And if you find him, this is what I want you to do. I want you to tell him I love him, that I'm lovesick. And so then they ask her, how is it that your man is better than others, most beautiful women? How is it that your beloved is better than others, that you charge us so? And then this is her word. She says, my lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is pure as gold. His hair is wavy and black as ravens. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels, his cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set in bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is the poetry of the day. This is how they express themselves, using jewels and using buildings and using a forest to describe their love for each other. 
It is using the things of nature, the things that God has created, the things that are valuable in this world to communicate that she thinks her husband is so valuable. These are the words she wants to say to him when she sees him. She wants to make up to him and she's going to do it with these words. She's saying, you know what? It's like your hair is like pure as gold. That is just saying that you are so valuable to me. When she says that, you know, his eyes are like doves, what she's saying is when I look into your eyes, I see peace. I see a gentle character. And that's what she needs, right? Because she feels guilty about what happened in the marriage. And so she needs to look into the eyes of her husband and see peace. She wants to look into the eyes of her husband and be able to see that what he wants is to be gentle with her. And so she speaks about this quality within him. She talks about him as being handsome. His body's like polished ivory. His legs are like pillars of marble. I mean, what man doesn't want to be described like that? You know, this is what God wants. He wants us to build each other up. You know, men's egos need building up. They need to hear this, most especially from our mates, that they admire us and that they love us. But so too women need to be built up. They need to be talked to in the right ways. And so if we went down to chapter 6, verse 4, she finds her man. They find him in the garden. And now she's standing there before him. And so you imagine, here's the scene. Like, you know, they had this fight. They, they, they had this thing. He got upset. He took off. She decides to go find him. She works through the pain. She lets go of her pride. She goes and she finds him. And they're standing there. She's declared what a wonderful man he is. And now it's her turn to speak. And this is what she said. he says in verse 4 of chapter 6. You are beautiful. You are beautiful, my darling. Is Terza. Lovely as Jerusalem, majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Now there's no scorekeeping here. He doesn't say anything bad to her. He doesn't respond to her in a negative way. But he receives her. There's some things here that we learn from the reaction and the actions of the beloved and the lover here of how they treat each other. You know, these are how the words that we ought to speak are. This is what God would have us to say. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, the Bible says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I think these words, you know, could be pasted on our foreheads as we relate to ourselves and as we relate to our spouses and our mates. You know, reckless words pierce like a sword. You know, when we have conflict, that's a time where we really need to guard our mouth. When we have difficulties, that's a time where we need to pray for wisdom. We can either pour gas on the sparks of conflict, or we can pour water on the sparks of conflict. It's so much easier to pour gas, right? You know, because that's our human nature. You know, and so here are three things that we do, I think, that that can pour gas on the fire. We can speak in absolutes. You ever hear yourself or you hear your spouse going, well, you never do this or you always do that. You know, the moment you hear yourself or your spouse say that, just know that's not true, right? It's never, never, and it's not always, always, right? These things are the way that our spirit reacts. We wish that we could be perfect, but we're not. 
And so we respond in such an imperfect manner and we use absolutes and that's just pouring more gas on the fire. The other thing is that we can do accusations. He could have said to her, you locked the door, you didn't let me in. And she could have said, well, you didn't wait, you weren't patient. You know, they could have had sarcasm, they could have begun arguing, but they don't. They don't point fingers at each other. They take responsibility for their own actions. And they take responsibility for their own words. There are no words of absolutes. There are no accusations here. And there is no attacking that is going on. There is no attacking. There is no attempt here to try to win. There's no yelling. There's no desire. I mean, sometimes when I've been in an argument, my goal in the argument is just to make Carol feel bad. You know, that's my goal. Right? And I, I, I guess I, I don't care what happens. I don't even need to win. As long as she feels bad, that's all I care. You know, and this is my selfish human nature. Right? It's, just, it's just who I struggle to not be. And when I went into marriage, I, I thought, oh, this is going to be perfect, right? We didn't have any arguments. We didn't, it was going to be great. But marriage isn't perfect. But marriage is always perfecting. Marriage perfects us. And so we must be careful not to pour gas onto those conflicts. We must be careful not to make it worse, but instead we ought to pour water as they do. Pour water onto the relationship to make it grow. Now, in his own way, by saying you are beautiful, what he is doing is he is accepting her apology. She has come to him and said, your hair is like gold. I mean, okay, so women, the next time you have a conflict with your husband, you know, and you want to make it better, just go up to him and go, you know, honey, your, your arms are like rods of gold. Your body reminds me of, of polished ivory. Your legs, they're like pillars of marble. And see if he yells back at you, right? And so the next time, husbands, you want to make up to your wives, and she's really mad at you, just the first thing that you say to her when she looks at you, you say, you are beautiful, my darling. You are my dove. You are the sweetest thing I've ever smelled. You are lovely to look at. Don't, in fact, don't look at me. You're too beautiful. I am so unworthy. Now, if you say that to your husband, you think that's going to ignite the flames? No. Well, the other flames, right? The flames of passion, but not the flames of conflict. Truly, think about that. The next time, I mean, maybe this afternoon it happens. Your, your husband gets mad at you and he's going to take off on you. And just, oh, honey, your arms are like gold. And maybe your wife takes you off this afternoon. But you look at her and you go, you are so beautiful, my darling, my dove. And that is, you'll laugh, right? But you'll see, you know, that thing that we were going to argue about was just really so stupid anyway. And we need to work on this. We need to apologize. And as they do, as each of them does, they appreciate each other. They adore each other. I mean, I know it's getting harder and harder for Carol to adore me as I get older and older, okay? But I need it still, right? To appreciate, to adore, and then accept and show affection to each other. To show affection 
to one another, to communicate with these gracious words and then with actions that, that bespeak of the words that we just used. And these are true, like I said, of any relationship, but especially of the relationship between husband and wife. Let us pour water onto our relationships to make them grow. Let us learn, as it said in the traditional words, to live together under the gracious gift of God's grace. 1 Peter 3, 7. You have it there in your outline. And these are Peter's words to husbands. And these are the words that inspired the end of the traditional words that are said at the beginning of a wedding. It says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know, whatever we want in life, that's a sort of like, I think, what we would pray about, right? So you think about whatever you want most in life, you can't get it if you don't have the right relationship with your spouse. Now, you might get those things physically, but you're not going to enjoy them. Because the greater thing in life is this relationship that you can have with the one you committed to. This gracious gift that God has given to us, and he wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to build a relationship because this is what God has given to us. The Bible says that for every believer, they are a co-heir with Christ. In other words, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to the believer. And Jesus conquered sin, and he conquered conflict on the cross. And he brings these two elements together that we might love each other in the same way that he loves us. He died to himself. And the same thing must happen to us when there's conflict. We must die to ourselves. But then he also gives his blood to forgive and to give life. And we must offer ourselves to each other to give our life blood, to say, I am going to work through this. I am going to receive you. We are going to conquer conflict and not let conflict conquer us. That's a choice that each of us must make. So let's conclude with this thought. You decide. Are you going to let conflict conquer you? Or are you going to conquer conflict.